Thank you, Bob. And uh, children may be released at this time to Children's Church, which they'll find through this door on the left side of the sanctuary by the piano. And uh, that's uh, kids kindergarten through second grade. And could I ask you to turn to the book of Revelation? And we're going to be in Revelation chapter 13. If you're using the Pew Bible, you'll find it on page 1224. And this is a, a passage about trials and uh, the biggest trial that we can expect. And uh, God sends hard times. And when He does, we get discouraged and we lose hope and we get weak and we lose faith and we give up. And uh, this is exactly what this passage is telling us that we must not do. The great thing about, uh, about this passage, we're in Revelation chapter 13, the first 10 verses, is this passage gives us exactly what, what to do with it. What do you do with this vision of this beast? He's coming around, he's killing everybody, he's doing all these terrible things. And uh, what do you do with it? Verse 10, the last phrase of the passage. This is what you do with it. Persevere. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness. Faith on the part of the saints. Let's bow in prayer. Father, work in our hearts that we might be strengthened to endure that through this warning that we're reading today, this terrifying vision, that you might speak to us and encourage us and challenge us to draw close to you, to find hope in you, to deepen our walk with you, to strengthen our faith in you, that our patient resolve, our endurance, and our perseverance would never wear out. Through the grace of your Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So this is a vision of the beast, the Antichrist. And it's a vision of him at the prime of his success and doing everything that his heart desires to do. Later on, there's another vision of him in chapter 17. And uh, there you have the, the woman on the beast. And of course, it's the same character who is the beast. And there's more description and details about him. Um, but in that, in that vision in chapter 17, he's presented as very uh, disgusting, abominable, ugly and then judged. But in this vision, he's presented as terrifying and dangerous. And uh, it's, it's a warning and a challenge for us to be faithful and to endure, to have faith in God, to believe in Him, to believe His promises, to hold on to His Word, and to persevere, to not give up, to not lose hope. 
So I, I break the passage down here, Revelation 13, the first ten verses. I break it into two parts. I find the first part, verses 1 through 4, talks about the success of Satan. And the second part, verses uh, 5, mainly through 8, uh, talks about the, uh, the permission of God. God gives permission. He gives license. He gives leeway. He allows Satan to carry out all of his plans. And so uh, let's look at this terrifying vision and let's seek the Lord that he might equip us to be strong in the things that we face in our daily lives. And uh, even if it be his will that we should face these, these things prophesied here, that we would be strong. So the first four verses, the satanic success. And satanic success calls for faith. We need to be people of faith if we're going to stand when Satan is rising and his kingdom is succeeding. So I just want us to see all the successes of Satan here in these first four verses. First in, in verse 1, uh, Satan gives rise to the beast. And it says that it's the dragon. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. So it's the dragon who brings forth this terrifying king and this terrifying kingdom. And uh, who is the dragon, of course, if you flip back into Revelation 12, the dragon is being introduced Verse 9, the great dragon was hurled down. This is Revelation nine, uh, uh, Revelation 12, verse 9. It tells who the dragon is. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. The dragon in this passage is Satan. Satan has been fighting against the people of God in chapter 12. So we get to the end of chapter 12. And it says the dragon was enraged at the woman. The woman is the people of God. Especially, it seems, the, the faithful remnant among the Jewish people. The dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So uh, Satan is enraged at the people of God. He goes to the edge of the sea and he calls forth the beast. So the beast is Satan's project. It's Satan's tool. It's Satan's means of attacking out of his rage, attacking the people of God, attacking the purposes of God and uh, stamping out the image of God in the world and the work of Christ. It's hard to look at a government as being satanic. Are you able to ever think about the United States government as being satanic? Yeah, well, some, okay, I see some people nodding their heads. <laughs> you know, the, the, to even raise the idea, I think it's, it's a shocking idea. And it's, it's shocking. How can this country be satanic? And, uh, you know, I think even for um, Hitler, 
you know, Hitler was setting off to do good. He was, he was consciously attempting to do good as he defined it. Of course, the way that Hitler defined good was something that is radically evil, but, you know, people who are evil are trying to do good, at least in their own warped minds. And I think the United States is as good as a nation as it is. And I love the United States. It, it could be evil. And these things, they sneak up on us. The way that the devil works is sneaky. And he works through people who, he works through people who think they're doing good, who are trying to do good. And um, uh, for us to be able to detect the Antichrist... For us to be able to detect Satan's success in raising up a government and accomplishing his purposes is going to require uh, perception. It's going to require understanding and discernment. It's going to require a heart of faith, a heart that sees God and not just the things that people are doing, A, a mind that's informed by the word of God, and that can see truth and see what's, what's right and what's wrong, a mind trained by the Word of God. We need to be people of faith if we're going to discern the evil that Satan is going to raise up. So Satan gives rise to the beast out of the sea, whatever the sea is. I, I think maybe the sea is the, the raging... Uh, billowing evil of of human society and the peoples of the world. And so the beast rises up out of mankind, the way governments rise up. And he'll look normal. He'll look good. And people will be persuaded. Satan gives rise to the beast and Satan gives his likeness to the beast. We see that the beast is really the son of Satan. And he bears the image of Satan. Look in verse, uh, verse 1. I saw a beast coming out of the sea. He had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on his horns. And on each head a blasphemous name. This is almost the same as the dragon. If you'll look back in chapter 12 again in verse 3, you meet the dragon, you see the description of the dragon, who we know is Satan. Chapter 12, verse 3. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. So the beast has ten crowns, the dragon has seven crowns, whatever. It's uh, the seven heads and the ten horns. This is the dragon incarnate. This is... Uh, you know, this is Satan's man. The devil is able to uh, carry out his work through the Antichrist, through, through this beast, this leader or this kingdom that arises. So um, uh, there's, there's more in the likeness of the beast that we see here as we, as we go on in verse 2. The beast I saw resembled a leopard had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. And the dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. So, the feet of a bear. You don't want to deal with a bear's paws. You know, a Kodiak, a grizzly. They're, they're very fierce animals and they use their paws to tremendous effect. 
the destructive feet of the bear. The leopard, this beast is like a leopard. The leopard is a, a, a swift, secretive, vicious predator, very effective. Comes and steals its prey and it's gone and you never see it. Uh, all you hear is the, you know, the cry off in the distance. The mouth of the lion, the mouth like a lion which devours and which when it roars, it freezes the blood. It, it, it stops you in your tracks. This is the, the terror of the beast. And uh, this is what Satan gives to the beast. All of these images come out of the book of Daniel. A number of times we've gone back and dipped into the book of Daniel as we've gone through Revelation because John, in writing Revelation, is, it, it seems to be seeing you know, the things that have the same resemblance as the things in the book of Daniel. In Daniel, there were four beasts that rose up out of the sea. One of them looked like a leopard. One of them looked like a bear. One of them looked like a lion. And then the fourth beast, which is the Roman Empire, was the most terrifying of all with iron teeth and it crushed its prey. John isn't writing of any of them. He takes all of them and he puts together a composite and he says that this is the kind of beast that I saw. It had something from all of them, maybe everything from all of them. It's all rolled up into one horrifying image. Whatever terrifying power Satan has enabled kingdoms and empires and people and nations to have in the past, the Antichrist, this beast who arises at the end, has all of it. So he bears Satan's image. Satan is a destroyer and this beast is a destroyer. And he gains popularity. He succeeds by his destruction and his power to kill. So it's a totalitarian power. When, uh, when, po- when people get power, they turn a little crooked. A little power, a little crooked. More power, more crooked. It's uh, Lord Acton who said, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And uh, so arguing against uh, the right of leaders to claim you know, supernatural rights for themselves. And uh, that's exactly what the beast does, is he claims so much for himself. He, uh, his, his power increases and his corruption increases with it. So when this arises, we need to trust in God, not trust in a powerful nation, a powerful army, a strong nation, a strong economy, but trust in God. We need to be skeptical about governments and about nations and about leaders, but we need to have faith in God. And uh, when, when the Antichrist arises, he will seem very credible and plausible and it will be tempting to believe in him. So Satan gives rise to the beast. Satan gives his likeness to the beast, the likeness of the deceiver and the destroyer. And Satan gives his throne to the beast. 
verse 2. Um, so Satan uh, has power over the world. John tells us in, in the first letter of John, uh, chapter 5, that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. And so here with the Antichrist, the invisible power of Satan, influence of Satan over the whole world becomes the visible kingdom of Satan in the world. So uh, reading verse 2, the beast I saw resembled a leopard, um, uh, but had the feet like those of the bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. So the dragon is, uh, is the one who's giving, giving the beast his kingdom. It's Satan who is behind the Antichrist's kingdom. It's a kingdom which arises as other kingdoms have arisen. As the, the Roman Empire had arisen, which John was facing and in his day. And John saw that behind these kingdoms is satanic power. Behind human governments is satanic power. And uh, God is graciously using them as well in our day. But in that day, the day of the Antichrist, Satan will be working through it more fully and he will give his throne to the Antichrist, give his power and his authority to be wielded by the Antichrist. Power wielded brutally. You know, uh, the doctrine of the Antichrist seems to be something which was taught in the early church. Seems to be derived from the book of Daniel. Daniel in chapter 7 speaks of the, the abomination that causes desolation, the, the, the desecrating sacrilege, that the, the, somehow the king would come into the temple and he would claim the place of God in the temple and that this was going to be the terrifying, uh, you know, horrible thing, you know, the, the blasphemy that just ruins everything. And so Jesus, in warning his disciples about last things, Matthew 24, it's called the Olivet Discourse. Jesus tells them that when you see the abomination that causes desolation, let the reader understand, then run away because it's going to be dangerous. Flee for the hills. So Jesus talks about the rise of a figure at the end. And there have been figures throughout history that have fulfilled this to some degree. When Daniel wrote, not many uh, centuries after that, there was a fulfillment. And uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, the, uh, the uh, king at the time, came and established his image in the temple, on a wing of the temple. So it was the abomination that causes desolation in fulfillment of what, what Daniel had prophesied. And uh, when the second temple was destroyed, they desecrated it and they established their own authority over it. The abomination that causes desolation. The Antichrist comes and he takes the place of God and he is the abomination that causes desolation. And we'll see down below how he, how he calls for worship, how he causes worship to himself. So um, this is the, uh, the, the theme of the Antichrist. Jesus starts to teach it when John writes his letter, 1 John, once again, 
he, he cites the way that the people were, were aware of the teaching of the Antichrist. He says, you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, 1 John 2.18. He says, you have heard that the Antichrist is coming. And even now, many Antichrists, many Antichrists have come. And this is what they're like, and this is how you know them. So the, the spirit of Antichrist is present. It's present now. But the Antichrist will come. And so there was a teaching in the, in the New Testament. I think the one place in the New Testament we find the teaching of the Antichrist, besides the book of Revelation, the place where we find it laid out the clearest is in 2 Thessalonians. I'd like to ask you to turn there with me right now. And just read about this New Testament teaching about the Antichrist. Here in 2 Thessalonians, we're going to be on page 1172. And so Paul is writing to a church in Thessalonica. And he, he's uh, writing, he's concerned. The people, people seem to have the idea that Christ has already come. And they seem to have gotten this idea from a letter, which uh, maybe a, forge, a forgery, which claimed to be from Paul, which indicated that Christ had already come. Somehow they had gotten this confusion. And so Paul writes to straighten them out and to tell them, no, Jesus has not come. In fact, don't you remember that we taught you about the Antichrist and that uh, he calls him the man of lawlessness, that the man of lawlessness must be revealed first. And so we'll, we'll pick up here for, uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and the first 12 verses. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy report or letter supposed to have come from us saying that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you I used to tell you these things and now you know what is holding him back so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow by the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. So Paul's teaching about the Antichrist, and it seems to me that we're meeting the same figure, that end time figure, that expected figure at the end time uh, is, is the Antichrist. So what, what we've gotten so far in Revelation, we're at chapter 12, and there's, there's a new beginning with chapter 12. We start with the woman, and the woman has a baby who is Jesus. 
and the woman is running away from the dragon, and then the dragon calls the beast out of the sea. And so here we are at the beginning of the end with the, the, the Antichrist. So, um, so Satan has given rise to the beast. Satan gives his likeness to the beast. And Satan gives his throne to the beast. And who can stand and who can resist the power of this evil king and his kingdom? New day, same old beast, only much worse. Uh, Satan gives his deceptiveness to the beast. In verse 3, I want us to see how the beast is a parody of Christ. We've already seen how the beast is like the son of Christ. Uh, That is, the beast is like the son of the devil, the devil's son. Because he, just as, uh, as Jesus is the son of God and bears the image of the father, so the beast is the son of Satan and bears the image of Satan that we've looked at. Now I want you to see another kind of parody here, very deceptive, in verse 3. Revelation 13, verse 3. That's on page 1222. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. And the whole world was astonished and followed the beast. So now we get the deception of a false resurrection. Probably uh, in John's day, he heard people talking about how Nero was going to be raised from the dead. Um, Nero had been the emperor and he had committed suicide. At Nero's death, the empire was, was thrown into a period of chaos and turmoil. There were a couple of different people who tried to be emperor for a while and they didn't make it for very long. And there was a lot of instability and people were really concerned. And the myth arose that either Nero was somewhere hiding and he was going to come back or Nero was going to rise from the dead. And you're out there trying to tell people about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and people are there all excited. Oh yeah, resurrection? Yeah, did you hear Nero? Is, he's raised from the dead and he's coming back? And you go, no, 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 that's not what I'm talking about. Man, the, the confusion, the, 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 false, um, uh, the false Christs and the, the, the things that are like Christ but are not Christ is, is almost Christ good enough. Is almost Christianity good enough for you? Are you willing to accept substitutes? You know, is there an interchangeable part that can be almost as good as Christianity or better? Are you willing to substitute something else for Jesus? Well, this is what the Antichrist proposes to be, a newer, better Jesus for you. And uh, he'll be persuasive. It'll be great to be on his side. You won't want to be against him. Do you have faith in the real Jesus? Can you hold on to him through to the end? Yeah, Satan gives his deceptiveness to the beast. <clears throat> and Satan gives his following to the beast. Uh, look at the end of verse 3 through verse 4. The whole world was astonished and followed the beast. Men worshipped the dragon, that Satan, because he had given authority to the beast, and they also worshipped the beast and asked, 
Who is like the beast? Who can make war against him? So Satan has a worldwide following. And now the Antichrist has a worldwide following. And people everywhere are, are coming after the, the beast and following him. There's a natural affinity between Satan and fallen man. And so people are attracted to the Antichrist and there's, they're naturally drawn to him. And you know what? There's a natural affinity between our hearts, redeemed though we be, but in our fallen sinful nature, which still remains with us, there are some places where there is an appeal and our flesh cries out against our spirit and we find a warfare within us and we find an internal conflict and we have to continue to turn back to Christ and our own hearts rebel against us and we rebel against the rule of our mind and of our will and of our heart. So even within us, we find an affinity with Satan and his ways. So we're tempted. And there's an affinity between us and our fellow human beings. And when everybody is going the same way, it's very hard to go against the tide. And we want to be with the crowd. When the Antichrist arises, you want to be with the crowd. And I'll tell you what, the, the way I've just read Revelation for you, the Antichrist, I think, is the first thing to expect. It's the first thing to look for. And uh, so here he comes. He arises like governments arise, like leaders arise. And oh, people love this one. People just get all carried away trying to say, well, this, oh, this might be the Antichrist. Well, that might be the Antichrist. Well, this is the Antichrist. You know, people have been so sure this one was the Antichrist and that one was the Antichrist. Uh, you, you, you better just hold off. Keep your powder dry. You know, the big thing to focus on is having faith in Christ and sticking close to him so that you will have discernment not to go the wrong way. And as John said, many Antichrists have come. And they come even on the small scale in our lives, not only on the worldwide stage. And so we need to follow Christ, hold firmly to him. And, uh, and that's the way that we're going to resist the little antichrists and the big one who comes at last. Satanic success calls for faith. We have to keep trusting God. We have to know who we believe so we don't get led astray and pulled into Satan's ways. But, uh, you know, the most painful part of a trial is not necessarily how the evil has grown, but how God has not intervened. And so it is with the Antichrist. The most difficult part, perhaps, of this trial is that God doesn't seem to be doing anything. Rather, God seems to be giving permission. He seems to be opening the way. And so we get in, in our, our translation, the NIV, over and over, place, over and over again in different places from verses 5 through 8, we see that the beast was given this and the beast was given that. And who is the one who is giving to the beast now but God? Because it's God 
who holds everything in his hands. And so we read verse 5, the beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies. Uh, We read in verse 7, he was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them, but they're in God's hands. And he was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. God is given giving all these things into his hands. And so God is giving permission to Satan. So divine permission calls for perseverance. When God seems to not answer prayer, when he seems to put himself in a place where you can't see him, where you can't sense his presence, where he doesn't seem to be active in the way that you need him to be active in your life, it's easy to give up. And so here it is. At the end times, the beast you know, carries on and does all these things. Satan carries forward his cause and God allows it to go ahead and it's discouraging and we want to give up. Will you look with me at the divine permission that calls for perseverance? In verses 5 and 6, God permits the beast to promote himself and so the beast is given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise his authority. For 42 months, he opened his mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. So he's talking, you know, a lot of big talk, a lot of proud talk. And he's, you know, putting God down and putting himself up. And it's it's like that image of occupying the temple, of going and taking his place in the temple. Here he is with his words and his mouth. He's, you know, a master of propaganda, whatever, talking himself up. Do you ever feel like showing off? Isn't it fun to show off and to to talk big, a little trash talk here and there? Uh, It's it's always fun. Here he's he's just taking um, taking it to the extreme. And he's defying God. Self promotion is blasphemy. You know, we have to look at this vision of the beast from the perspective of the throne of God. This uh, this first vision in Revelation in chapter 4. Will you turn back there? Uh, Revelation chapter 4. When when Jeremy preached on Revelation 4, he told us, I think, very very rightly, that Revelation 4 is the key to understanding the entire book that Revelation is about the throne of God, God on His throne, God in control, God glorious, God worshipped, God praised. And here He is. I just want to remind you of this, uh, this tremendous vision of God on His throne and of His glory so that then when you consider the beast's proudful, prideful words and his claims for himself, that you'll see what blasphemy it is. Here then, stand at the throne of God and look. Revelation 4, verse 2. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it, and the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. A rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne, 
Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. And then we go down and read what they're singing. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And then the, the song down in verse 11. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. And then the vision goes on to the presence of Christ, the Lamb, and His glory and the worship there in heaven. And we're made to realize that God is great and awesome, far greater and, and, and more wonderful than words can portray. And so our hearts are moved with this vision to think of God and His greatness and what it must be to be in His presence. But we're in His presence now. He's here. And the beast is making all these loud noises with his big lion's mouth and boasting and roaring about how great he is and how small God is. And everyone is going after him. And it's disheartening. And you want to give up. And you want to give in and go along. But don't. God still knows you He still holds you in His hand. He still loves you. He still has purposes for you. He's still the one who redeemed you. And He's still coming to redeem you. Don't give up. Don't give in. Don't turn back. This calls for perseverance. God permits the beast to promote Himself. God permits the beast time to rule. If you look there in verse 5, He's uh, uh, given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise his authority for 42 months. So he's given a time. Now, exactly what the 42 months is, oh my, it's, it's a period of time, eschatological time. You know, it's a, it's a time. Uh, here's the big thing. Yeah, I don't know what comes before, what comes after it, how it fits in with seven years and all this. Uh, that, those are tough questions for me. Here's what I get. 42 months is not forever. It has a beginning and it has an end. And don't give up just before deliverance comes. That much I'm sure of. That'll preach. You know, He's going to meet his end. You're going to be delivered. You're going to be saved out of his grasp. One way or the other, don't give up. It's only 42 months, however long that is. You can hold on. God permits the beast to promote himself, permits him time to rule. God permits the beast to triumph over the saints. Verse 7, he was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them, to destroy the church, to attack God's people, to put them to death. And he has the victory.
from this world's perspective. But we know who has the true victory, and it isn't the beast. So this is terrifying. God has withdrawn his protection. He is allowing Satan to carry out his plans, even against the people of God. And it proves two things. It proves the cruelty of Satan. Remember the, um, the story of Job. And Satan is allowed to go out of his presence. And Satan does terrible things to Job. So cruel. Remember Jesus and uh, the man who had all the demons, a legion of demons. And the demons begged, don't drive us into the uh, abyss, but let us go into that herd of pigs. And Jesus says, okay, go. Why does Jesus let him go into the herd of pigs? Well, I'm not going to try to explain everything Jesus does. But I see the destructive power as the demons go and drive all of those animals down into the sea to be drowned. The destructive power of Satan is revealed. So God gives permission to Satan to do this to the church and Satan's cruelty is revealed for men and angels to see that there might be an eternal record of it for the ages. Satan is cruel and vicious. And also it proves the loyalty and love of God's people. Do we only serve him because he protects us? Do we only serve him because he fills our stomachs? Will we serve him when he takes his hand away and lets Satan have his way with us? Is he better than life? Have you met him? He is. The Savior is better than life. Hold on to him so that you won't be tempted to let go when God gives permission to the beast to do all his work and to carry out all that he wants to do. God permits the beast to promote himself permits him time to rule, permits him to triumph over the saints, and God permits the beast to fulfill his, uh, his ambitions, his kingdom ambitions. Look at the, the beast's kingdom in verses 7 and 8. <clears throat> Last part of verse 7, he was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all those whose names have not been written in the book of life belonging to the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. Every people, nation, tribe, and tongue, all authority is given to the beast and he reigns over everything. Here is the Antichrist. Christ has all authority in heaven and on earth. But here the beast, the usurper, has been allowed to exercise his satanic authority over all the earth except those who refuse him and reject him. And those are punished. So this kind of success is the kind of success that tyrants have longed for. All the antichrists that have come, you know, uh, if it's Hitler or if it's uh, Domitian, the emperor in John's time, uh, all the antichrists who have come, if it's been Nebuchadnezzar, that great king, or Pharaoh, Whenever they've come, when Napoleon trying to spread his kingdom, Alexander the Great sweeping across the world in a very short time, conquering, conquering. The ambition has always been world domination. 
And you know, the, the greater the power, the greater the corruption, and the more it's seen for what it is. And when we see such a fulfillment of the desire of Satan, that the whole world goes after him, it's discouraging, and we want to go along. So, how are we supposed to get ready? That's what verses uh, 9 and 10 are about. How to get ready. Verse 9, just a warning. He who has an ear, let him hear. There's a warning. Listen now. Here's how to get ready. Verse 10, if anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity he will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword he will be killed. So like what? Do we get shotguns and food and hide out in a cabin? Do we move off to a remote corner of the country? Or do we uh, get politically active so that we can campaign against the Antichrist whenever he arises? Uh, What's the strategy here? The strategy is uh, there in the last phrase, this calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. There's going to be nowhere to hide. If you happen to be hidden, that'll be fine. If you want to go and live in Montana in a hut, and th- and maybe, you'll, maybe you'll escape. I don't know. But Jesus told you to do what? Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And lo, I will be with you always to the very end of the age. He hasn't uh, taken that back. So we're ambassadors for Christ. We go. We don't give up. We keep pushing ahead. I don't know if the Antichrist will come in my lifetime. I don't know if the Antichrist might not come after 5,000 more years. Who would have ever thought it would be 2,000 years? Who to thunk it? And here we are. So the Antichrist doesn't have to come soon. The end doesn't have to be imminent. But we have to be ready. But whether the Antichrist comes in my lifetime or not, we're going to face these things and we need to be ready. He could be around the corner. We don't know. We need to be ready with faith fixed on the Lord Jesus and a heart ready to persevere. And if he comes and you or I are among those who are destined for the sword or captivity. Just remember this. Not all victory is good. Not all success is good. And not all defeat is bad. Let's pray. Thank you, King Jesus, that you reign that the Antichrist is nothing before you, that you will destroy him with the breath of your mouth, that he is a small item for you to deal with and take care of. All of his great boastings will have amounted to nothing. He will be taken captive and cast into the lake of burning sulfur where he will meet his end. And we have no fear because you're faithful because you know your children, because your heart goes out to your children, you don't forget them. And you will hold on to us and not let us go. So help us to be strong and hold on to you today and tomorrow 
and whatever may face us in the days to come. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. And um, we're coming to the Lord's table. One of our elders, John Gennard, is going to lead us in the Lord's Supper. And if you are a believer in Christ, if you know Christ as Savior, if you put your faith in Him, you're holding on to Him and you're going to stand with Him no matter what, this is the Lord's table and you're welcome to share it with us. If you have not put your faith in Christ, if you haven't repented of your sins and found salvation in the blood of Christ, then we would invite you to just participate by observing. When the plate comes, just pass it along. Uh, We wouldn't want you to, to play a mockery of a ritual that doesn't have its real meaning for you. Uh, yet and we pray for you and you pray for yourself Uh, if you have kids here uh, please use discernment this is not snack time and you you might want to talk with your kids at some point and discuss with them about the need for them to stand up be counted for Jesus receive baptism become uh, recognized as a member of a church and to participate with the church in the observance of the Lord's Supper So that's uh, something for you to consider uh, as a family. Um, So, John, will you lead us? Thank you, sir. Can everyone hear me? Um, It's an honor to be here and uh, today uh, to prepare our hearts and our minds uh, for communion. In preparation for today and and how to best do that, um, I realize that uh, I've taken this place for granted. I've been coming here for a long time. I got married up here 25 years ago this year. I uh, was baptized here. Uh, I've had an opportunity. I've been blessed to, to serve uh, communion here for nine years. Um, there's a lot that I've, I've taken, a, taken for granted uh, with this church. Not the building, but the fact that this is part of Christ's body, um, all of you, um, and the fact that we share um, in Christ uh, that relationship. When I think about the, some of the sermons, um, the many sermons I've heard over the years here, um, I also think I take those for granted. Uh, I think a lot of times we give credit to the person delivering them rather than the person who inspired them. I think as Christians, we should walk and talk and think with God in the forefront of our minds. It should be automatic to go to Him in prayer, to give Him the credit. But do we? Yesterday when uh, we had that gorgeous day and everybody's out doing landscaping, um, when you looked at the sun and all the, the plants out, were you giving credit to God? That beautiful dogwood in my yard, uh, when I looked at it, was I thinking, gee, it's amazing what God can do. I was thinking, ah, it's too bad next week it's not going to be that way. It's going to be that white. I think, unfortunately for us, Christ knows our hearts. Uh, We take things for granted. We take him for granted. Jesus knew that we would need to uh, be reminded, that we would uh, need a a re-emphasis of his sacrifice and of the new covenant. The Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke each capture Jesus' own words, establishing the ordinance that is the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper reminds us of Christ's death on the cross for our sins. When we partake of it, we